Welcome to episode 45 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. This week, we have a very special guest with us, Taylor Norrish, who's owner and creator of printfriendly.com. Hey, Taylor, how's it going? Hi, Justin and Jason. Hey, Taylor. Thanks a lot for uh, coming on the show. It's, uh, it's fun to have you on. You know, I'm a, I'm a, a big fan of uh, your uh, print-friendly service, which I discovered, I don't know, a couple months ago. And I think I've mentioned on the show at least two or three times. Um, it was one of those things where I had sort of wished out loud that somebody would create something like this. <laughs> nice. And it magically appeared. And I was like, oh, God. So, uh, <laughs> so let, yeah, why, why don't we get started by first telling us just a little bit about Print Friendly and how you came up with the idea and, uh, you know, what you're doing with it. And then we'll get into some other stuff, I guess. Yeah, sure. Um, I launched it about a year ago, I think, exactly. Um, and it was a similar situation. I was printing up a Wikipedia page and like I printed like six, seven extra pages of junk. And I was just thinking, oh my God, you know, why hasn't this improved by now? It's, you know, 2009. And so I, I you know, that was kind of the light bulb moment. Um, so I, you know, did a little research and I couldn't find anything out there. Um, right. And so I started building it, uh, it, and, and so when you started building it, what, what is it, what is the sort of the, I don't know, your technique for extracting that information? Can you give sort of a, a high level view of, of, of how that works? Yeah. So there's a, an algorithm that goes through uh, the page. There's, there's two different versions. There's the server side version, which is the website where you enter the URL. And then there's the client side version, um, which is the bookmarklet or the button. Right. And what it does is, is on the server side, it has to pull in the content and parse it. I think uh, we're using Nokagiri. Um, and then uh, we apply the algorithm. And what the algorithm does is it kind of goes through and strips out every, you know, a bunch of stuff, you know, JavaScripts and, you know, like a lot of junk HTML. And then it uh, assigns like a ranking to to other elements like paragraph tags, paragraphs with content or with text in there. Um, right. And then at the end, it kind of figures out, okay, you know, based on those rankings, what's the actual content. Hmm. Right. And so this is an algorithm that you created yourself? Um, no, it's an open source algorithm that we've modified. Okay. Cool. And, and when you say we, who's we? So uh, I work with a developer. Okay. Oh, so is, is that someone that you that you hire or someone who's kind of part of your actual team? Yeah, I hired him as a contractor. So I'm not a programmer. Um, I'm more of a, fr I'm a front-end guy. Um, oh, and before, I see. Yeah. And I think, before doing... Go I ahead. think this might be our first front-end guy on the show, Justin. Yeah. <laughs> okay, our pure Well, it had to happen guy. one day, didn't it? Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> there goes the neighborhood. I mean, we were trying yeah. to keep a minimum... <laughs> so I, I didn't quite get so is are you are you I see the cane coming <laughs> yeah so is, is he is he a gun for hire or is he part of the is, like does he have equity I mean how, how does that work uh, yeah he's a hired gun oh okay that's interesting so um so well I was going to say any plans to bring him on board, et cetera, et cetera, but uh, I'll, I'll just cut this bit out because maybe you don't want to maybe you don't have any plans and you probably don't want him to hear about them <laughs> uh you know and also, you know, he's kind of got his own, own things going on. He's quite a bit of a rock star. Um, oh, right. And yeah, he's he's off. He's really passionate now about wanting to do an Android app. Oh, so, okay. So I can't bring him on board. What well, is he, he should he, check out Titanium Accelerator. 
Yeah, has he? Uh, have you heard? You probably heard us talk about titanium. I'm sure we, we're we're we're, we're practically they're practically our sponsor, except we don't get paid. Right. <laughs> I have heard you talking about them. Yeah. Um. So so the, how did how did what's this guy's name? Vamsi. Vamsi. Vamsi Kanakala. Vamsi Kanakala. He's from India. Okay, and so how did you uh, how did you find him? You know, um, so this is my second startup. On my first startup, you know, I went to Elance. Um, okay. This was about three years ago and had just a terrible experience. Built, you know, got an application built. It's up and running. It's pretty, it's a really cool technology, but it was on ASP.net. So everything was expensive. And um, just the quality of it was, it was just crappy and buggy and not scalable. Right. Um, and so when I start, so uh, during GovIt, you know, about the year ago, I got the idea for print friendly and, um, or a year and a half ago. And yeah, I was like, no more Elance, no more companies. Um, and I just searched around for, um, blogs, like people that had a blog that were into more open source technologies. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's actually how I found a guy uh, who I've been working on, working with for about four last four, I don't know, five years now. Um, I, my project at the time was Prezo, which is like a web-based version of PowerPoint. It's this really, you know, heavy-duty JavaScript Ajax thing. And um, he, uh, I, I, I was working on it by myself, and I was like, man, it would be really a lot more fun and probably more productive if I found, if I could work on this with somebody. And uh, I searched this, and I was just, you know, searching out the web for JavaScript text editors. And, uh, you know, this guy, I found this guy who who'd written some articles and seemed really bright and I just contacted him and said, Hey, you know, would you be interested in doing some consulting work? And that's how, you know, we met and how we got started. Um, and I, and I, I've advocated a, a number of times on the show, like the best way to probably find someone is just go out there and just keep an eye on blogs. And, and, you know, you, if you keep an eye on hacker news for one, um, You'll you'll probably and, and you kind of maybe keep a, a list of names of people who are doing interesting stuff who who you might like to contact. And, and when you do have a project idea, just go out and send some emails. Say hey, you know, I'm working on some. Are you interested in uh, either consulting or, or whatever it is you you need them, in whatever capacity? Hey Taylor, um, I saw also that you had previously you were just talking there about your previous startup, which is called Govit.com. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Govit.com. Yeah. That's could right. You, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and, and the journey that you took with that and, and where that's all ended up. Yeah. So, um, you know, during the whole Web 2.0 movement, which was all about, you know, consumer generated content, I, you know, I kind of got the bug and I wanted to do something at about that same time. It was when net neutrality was coming out. And I remember there was this uh, video of Moby, who's this popular electronic musician. Yeah. Who's, you know, <laughs> you know go, running around, you know, doing this like 10 minute long video about how bad net neutrality is. And he gets to the end of it and he's like, call your congressman, you know, is the call to action. And I'm sitting there, it's like midnight, I'm in bed in my underwear. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to call my congressman. I don't <laughs> even know who they are. Right, uh, right. So I was thinking, you know, there's, you know, again, you know, there's just got to be a better way. And at the time, there really wasn't. Um, all there was was, you know, the, the, you know, I guess America's really cool in that we do publish the legislation through a database called Thomas. Um, but it was really hard to, to access. Um, and then once, and still, it wasn't very easy to, to take any real action. Um, so what I did is um, built an application that scraped Thomas, got all the bills out. 
and then allowed peop- allows people to vote on them. And then when you vote, you can send that vote off to your representative. And how did that? Uh, how did it? How did it work out as a? I don't know, a business or as a as a as a venture or whatever. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. So I launched it, and in the first week, I got two offers to buy it. One was from uh, Brad Greenspan, who was the quote founder of MySpace. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> And it's fun. And then uh, the other one, I don't want to mention their name, um, but they're a, a magazine company that's pretty popular. Um, and so at the time, you know, I was, it was kind of in the Web 2.0 days when sites were getting a lot of money. So I turned both the offers down. Um, wow. And this is, yeah, days after launching it. Yeah, because you, I guess you had uh, Web 2, Web 2 dollar signs in your eyes thinking... Okay, I'm going to take this, and this is going to turn into a hundred million dollar company, or whatever, or you know, twenty million, or whatever. And and their kind of offers of a couple of hundred thousand probably seem paltry. Exactly. <laughs> but how could you know? You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then what happened? I mean, so you get a couple offers. Can, can you? Can you? Are you um, comfortable telling how much the offer was for? Are yeah, it was exactly what Justin's saying. Uh, one was like 360, uh-huh. um, you know, and it was like a half cash, half other stuff. Right. Um, I see. And the other was, uh, I think, about 200, 250. Of just straight cash? I, th- I think it was p- part, less some other stuff, more cash, but uh, less other stuff. But presumably right. you'd, you'd paid something to get it there in the first place. So we, y- you may not even be making out that well. I mean, how much did you had you invested at that point, given that you'd um, outsourced it? I think at that time about twenty thousand. Okay, so that would, wouldn't have been a bad would have been a bad payday. <laughs> no, <laughs> I wish I could go back in time. <laughs> yeah, that is, it's it's almost like in the situations it would be great to sell off like half the the company in a way. Like you know, you could pocket a hundred or one hundred fifty thousand, and then let the rest ride. You know, See, and. Um, in the trading world, it's like if you have a winner, it's like, you know, the, the, the sort of rule of thumb or wisdom is like, you know, you want to you scale out of your position if you're, if you're making money. Take some off because nothing feels worse to be up a lot of money and then all of a sudden you, you go in the red and you start losing it all. And then you close out for a loss when you were in the red, when you were in the black. Yeah. So it's like you want to you, you don't want to keep riding it to the moon because at some point there's a good chance it's just going to go back down. So, you know, you, you kind of. Uh, take some of the winnings off the table so that worst case it's a winner it may not win as big but you know you at least get something to show for it and it has a big psychological boost so it's like in situations like this it'd be really you know like the best option would almost be that if you could say right you know you pocket some of it you you made a profit you have some uh money to live off of or whatever but you know you also have the chance they can still you know have that 10 20 50 multiplier was that even an option though yeah, that, that was exactly the option with Brad Greenspan. Um, oh. And I wish I knew that at, at the time, uh, what, uh, Jason, your advice. Um, you know, it, like I was saying, it was my first uh, venture. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, wow, if this is happening in the first week, what's going to happen in the second, third, and fourth week? So, uh, of course. And how old were you at the time, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I was like 34. Okay. I'm older. Okay, understood. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's, there's a lot to weigh up when you're in these situations. And as you say, this is your first venture. You're only a week in. What's going to happen a few weeks in? So, that's well, right. You know, 
there's also the, um, the you know the concept of like uh, I, I get the utility of money, which is like, would you rather have say one percent chance of making a billion dollars, or you know a ten percent chance of making you know a hundred million, or fifty percent chance of making you know whatever few million dollars? I mean, most people would say, hey, you know, I would much rather just because the difference between nothing and having a couple million dollars is huge. It's life changing, right? Um, and rather than having this really small chance of making a huge sum of money with the difference between being worth a few million versus being worth a billion when right now you have nothing is not as big of a difference. So it's always it's, – it's sort of you – know, a lot of times they have like these expected value calculations in economics, but those don't always take in consideration you know, how, what it actually means to you as, a, as an individual when you have you know, little to no money at, at the given time of making the decision. So what? So how did Govit wind up? Is it, is it still going? Um, what 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 are you doing with it? Or or, or if you, obviously you've moved on to printer friendly, but is is that two projects that you're running at the same time, and you're sort of hoping to take them both stratospheric? Or where do you stand with Govit now? Yeah. So um, you know, I I worked on Govit for like a year, you know, trying to get traffic up, um, and wasn't very successful. I think there were some things I could have done differently um you know there was one point um where i'd built these widgets where every voting module could be a widget on another site and actually done a deal with uh good dot is which is good magazine and they were going to put all the widgets on their site and i'm thinking okay TechCrunch when they're blogging about um you know some you know immigration law they can stick a widget up um but because i was on asp.net it wouldn't scale you know, because I'd be hosting all those widgets and I'm on a dedicated server. I'm bootstrapped. Um, I turned down those offers at this point. Um, wow. So cash is getting scarce. So, um, yeah, I ran, I ran into that problem that I couldn't really scale it. I couldn't get distribution. So it's interesting that you say because I was on ISP, I couldn't scale. I'm, I'm not sure that the that, that, that language determines if you can scale or not. Um, it was the server. I couldn't afford to get the servers in place. Okay, so so basically the whole load balancing system, and yeah. obviously, and and so we're we're talking about um, two years ago, are we, or is this a year ago, or when 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 is this? I think this is in the beginning of two thousand nine. Okay, so we hadn't got we, we hadn't, um, but, but I mean, I'm a, I guess it's because of your, the vendors had decided to build it that way rather than do rather than move build something on Amazon. Is that That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, and Amazon uh, wasn't taking uh, .NET stuff or SQL stuff. Okay. What about uh, Media Temple? I know I, I had a grid server account at Media Temple, and I something I sort of remember them having ASP as an option on their grid server. I may be wrong, but I think I remember something See, like that. You know, Jason, this is interesting because because Taylor isn't isn't a back end guy, right? And um, he basically has to rely on the advice of others. It essentially is um, a, a weakness in the in the a chink in the armor of an entrepreneur, especially a tech entrepreneur, regarding regarding things like this. Because for you or for me, that's a much easier problem to deal with. Yeah, well, you you, you have you, know, you have a whole different set of problems, I guess. So, you know, I mean, if you're a tech guy and you have no design sense and you can't afford a designer, or you can't even decide, determine what's a good design or not, then that's a huge weakness, right? right. You know, you, you kind of have to, every, everyone has their weakness. And so for, him, for, for Taylor, maybe not being able to um, ascertain or do the, a, a really in-depth um, analysis of what the best back-end solution would be, would be his weakness. But I think, you know, 
uh, one way or another, you're going to have some severe weaknesses. You, yeah. you know, you're not going to be able to do. You're not going to be um, very good at doing business development or make or, or setting up partnerships. Or you're not going to be very good at design and user experience or or, or, or whatever. It's yeah, we all have our weaknesses or our challenges. I guess. So, so Taylor, how, how are you? I mean, given given this this issue and this problem, how um, are you approaching it now with projects moving forward? What's your thoughts so, on it? So, I'm, well, I. I learned, uh, yeah, a few things, you know, kind of patching up some of those weaknesses, just, uh, you know, doing it, you talk to other people that are, you hear more about the latest cool stuff. So, for example, Print Friendly is on Ruby on Rails. We're using Amazon Web Services, and I, and I know that there's even, I guess, cheaper, more affordable services out there, you know, like I've been hearing good things about Rackspace Cloud. Um, yeah, I've right. had some experience with Rackspace Cloud, and that, that worked really well. Yeah, pl- my uh, plugio.com, my Twitter clients on Rackspace Cloud. And um, apart from a few little foibles, it does work well. Well, in fact, Justin, you actually turned me on to it in the first place. And in yeah. fact, I started using it <laughs> before you had even used it. And I didn't realize that you hadn't used it before. So I was like, you're guinea pig, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you're like, yeah. oh, yeah, totally use it. And then you're asking me, like, so how's it going for you? I'm like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? You know, you use it? Wow. But yeah, Rackspace Cloud, and you have, uh, I think it's a lot, there's probably quite a number of solutions now that do it for that. I mean, Media Temple's grid server, they have something. Um, I don't know, are there other ones? Justin, have you just, have you researched any other? Uh, no, but, um, so Taylor was Taylor was just saying, uh, you, you just got the two to Rackspace Cloud, so um, I think you were just about to tell us some other, some other take-homes that you had. Um, so yeah, the big take-homes was um, don't do things in ASP.NET, <laughs> um, or, or or anything not open source or open source is the way to go um, um, finding a, a good tech partner you know it's all about building that team and when you're first starting out it's, it's really tough um, and so I, one of the take homes was not going to Elance or Odesk but you know searching through people's blogs um, I thought or or now is kind of one of my key strategies because it's still, you know, I'm looking for a developer right now and, you know, it's tough to find and hire a developer when you don't know how to assess the skills. Um, right. So one of, one of the things I do is I look through their writing um, and then also I kind of try to gauge their passion. Um, you know, are they a member of Hacker News, for example? Well, one thing that's interesting you say about open source technologies of using open source technologies and part of the reason that I guess that makes it so much cheaper is they can all the stuff the open source stuff tends to run in linux i mean really you're you're talking about either microsoft or you're talking um some Unix. version of lamp stack or, or ruby or something and uh it's, or it's on java right yeah another one i just met right, I guess, somebody who built something expensive. and that usually tends to be more expensive too right because you have these app, yeah. java app servers tend to be proprietary i mean i don't know much about the java app servers maybe maybe nowadays they're We're, good Java's definitely expensive to develop. There's just no doubt about that because the Java developers are expensive. Well, even aside from the developers, assuming you're the one developing in Java, um, I mean, what do you have to purchase? I mean, you can use an open source database. Java can run on Linux. Um, So really, you're talking like Tomcat and things like that, which are like your sort of... Your applic- I don't know what they call it, Java application servers. I don't even know what that means, really. I mean, is it like because you got your web server and you got your database, and then you have something that just what? But for someone like Taylor, they have to make decisions based on the market rates of the languages. Um, but there's 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 a lot of stuff that goes into into the decision that Taylor's making, really. And I think you you know you know why you can see why Ruby on Rails is a good choice because 
a lot of developers want to do that. It's coming in at a good rate. You could, it can work on um, lots of different cloud solutions and it's going to be easy for him to move from one developer to another should he ever need to one day, you know. Why is Java cheaper than, um, uh, I mean, wh why, why do you think Ruby is cheaper than Java? Because I think that um, you can, like, I think that... My SQL is free. That's one thing. No, I mean, we're talking about, like, I mean, like, the developer rates. Like, why uh, is it, why is it, why are Java developers more expensive than Ruby? What makes you think that? Because there's going to be very few kids coming out of university who are just going to start coding in Java. Okay. And there's going to be a lot of kids coming out of university who are going to start coding in Ruby. And therefore, there's going to be a, a much more supply. You know what I'm saying? So, but you're also talking, I guess, about less experienced developers, probably. You are talking about less experienced developers in some senses, but over, over the long term, there will ultimately be more supply for, for, for um, PHP and um, Ruby than, than Java, than high-quality Java developers with lots of high-quality Java experience. Right. That's kind of interesting. I, I, I wonder about that. I'd love to see some data on that. You know, I think it makes sense be that the Java developers coming out of the enterprise mostly. I mean, I'm probably completely wrong. But anyway, that's just my theory. <laughs> that's your theory. Yeah, I'm just wondering about it. I mean, because, you know, and there's also the trade off of do you do you want somebody who's inexperienced, you know, who has like a year of experience or been just doing some side projects to do it or somebody who has five or ten or more years well, what about, I mean, passion's a part of it as well, right? Yeah, so, I don't know. I mean, you know, passion is important, but it doesn't, passion itself doesn't re uh, replace expertise. And um, What do you think, Taylor? Do you think passion's important or... Well, I didn't say, did I say passion was not important? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. I said that you can't replace expertise, um, skill, experience with just somebody who's really excited about something. I mean, you've worked with plenty of people, Justin, who are really excited but suck. Okay, right. I'm, what do you think about that, Taylor? Right. I was just interviewing right a, <laughs> I was interviewing a developer this week, and he kept using the word passion. And you know, I had asked him about you know what are your you know specific uh, strengths you know regarding skills, and he was again throughout that keyword passion to where I finally blurted out, passion doesn't build products. <laughs> okay, so basically, it's it it, it isn't that important. Um, from, from both of your guys' point of view? Oh, well, it's extremely important. It, just, it doesn't, it's not, uh, it can't replace experience and knowledge. So would you rather have a very experienced dead fish or a mediumly experienced, passionate, uh, I guess, something different than a dead fish? <laughs> the medium experienced, passionate person. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Justin, I think it's kind of a, a straw man, I guess. It's kind of a, it's a strange setup. I and mean, really, you want you, you, you kind of need both. You want somebody who's excited about what they're doing. I mean, who wants to work with somebody who's who's completely burnt out and, and, and disinterested in what they're doing, right? Um, or uninterested, I should say. Well, um, it depends on, how, on what capacity you're working with them. If they, if they share equity with you and they're a member of a team and you're all working in a very bootstrap scenario, that's one, that's one scenario. But another scenario is you're just paying a hired gun. So yeah, but, but to, the hired to argue gun against is a, myself, what difference does passion make if it's a hired gun? Oh well, yeah, it makes it, it makes it, it makes it does make difference because a difference because if the person you're you're hiring is is excited about the project, thinks it's really cool technology or a cool project, and is into it, then they're going to be they're going to probably be more responsive. They're going to write better code. If somebody's just like, well, okay, what do, what do you want again? What is it? What is you want to build? Whatever, you know. I mean, I, I can I can tell you for myself if there's if there's a consulting project where the the what we're building is, is, is more interesting to me. I'm going to be more excited about working on it, and I'm probably going to get more done quicker. 
Interesting. And if it's something that I'm just like totally burnt out on or just completely, you know, uninterested in. I, I mean, for instance, you know, I've told you that one contract I work on is, is building this trading software. It's one of my primary clients. And the guy I'm working with is a friend of mine. And we're going to get a situation now where we're going to start building a, uh, a what's called a fuzzy logic controller, which is sort of like a um, using fuzzy set theory to build a uh, an expert system that's going to help with the, the uh, trading decisions. Right. And that's stuff that I was interested in. I, I remember reading about fuzzy logic theory and fuzzy set theory and, you know, all this kind of stuff um, back in the mid-90s. And I, and, I had, and I always thought it would be really cool to build something like that, especially for trading. And like... And when he started talking, about it, I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. Like, I'm, I kind of broke up a couple of my other book, my old books and started reading them. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait till we get to this because it's going to be a ton of fun. Whereas so, the week so, before that, I was working on a couple of utility programs. I'm just like, oh, this is brutal. So, you Jason, know? listen, I'm not trying to start an argument here, but do you understand the concept of guest show? I do. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't mean we have to, we have to answer every question. I just think, I just want, I just, I just thought, I just want to illustrate the point that, okay. you know, it, it, it's just talking in the abstract isn't always as interesting as, as talking about specific examples. People, you know, I, I think it, it, it creates a better conversation. But anyway, yeah, I, I agree. I, I, you know, we can go with Taylor, but I just think you, you build stuff that you're excited about, you're going to build better stuff. But like I said earlier, you can't you can't uh, replace expertise and skill with just ex, you know a word. All right, so so Taylor, we'll we'll focus on you a little bit more since I've been hogging the bandwidth here. <laughs> no, that I'm enjoying it. So um, you know, I will say one thing back on that passion topic. Um, it doesn't seem like passions in short supply these days. I'm finding a lot of passionate people. Okay. Um, whereas, yeah, it used to be, you know, so I've been building websites, um, since the web 1.0 days and back in the corporate world, I'd remember working with these IT guys that were just no men, you know, they would spend all their energy, you know, figuring out ways to tell you how and why you couldn't do something instead of just doing it. Um, and that's, and I'm not meeting those kind of people, uh, so much these days, at least in the kind of startup community. So what, right. what kind of communities were you working in before where you saw the nomen? Was that like in large corporate environments? Yeah. Yeah. You see, in those kind of environments, it, it behooves people not to do work versus <laughs> doing work. You know, that's just the way it works. It's very political. <laughs> right. You just have to pretend like you're busy and trying hard. As yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't stick your neck out. It'll get cut off type of yeah. mentality. Yeah, you got it. The nail that sticks up gets, you know... Knockdown or whatever it's called. Um, well, no, you, are you? You're in uh, Northern California, right, Taylor? Yeah, South San Francisco. Okay, so you're right in the heart of all that. So I'm sure you run it. There, there's no shortage of people who are in and out of the startup community around. Yeah, there. yeah. It's interesting though. In all the meetups here, it's there's hardly any programmers. It's hard really? to find programmers. Really? Yeah. In San Francisco. Yes. Yeah. The, the programmers are in such high demand that what I end up meeting are a lot of other non-program entrepreneurs that are looking for co-founder or, um, you know, tech co-founders. See, this is where Jay, Jason has a product called App Ignite, and his, his vision is that, that it's a tool that non-programmers, guys such as yourself, can start building web software with. And if that can really work, that, you know, the, the market's so huge for you, Jason, if you can make it right. But I don't I want you, just to say before he goes into a whole thing. No, I won't. I'm not going to go off on it. I, I already, I already went off on a couple of topics. But yeah, hopefully it will take people who aren't 
programmers and, and at least get them to first or second base with um, with um, whatever whatever it is they want to build. Um, so you know it's interesting you say that about it's hard to find developers because. The, the one project that I'm working on, uh, one of my consulting projects is an iPhone app, and they're having a hard time finding uh, front-end developers, or, front, or I should say designers, and they're, they just can't get any time from them, and it's simply there's a shortage of designers as well. Have, have you noticed that? I mean, is, I mean, I, well, I guess you're a designer yourself, so maybe you're not looking, looking in that area. I think it's harder to find a good designer than it is to find a good programmer. There's a lot of designers out there, very few good ones. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's probably true. That's that's interesting. Why do you think that's the case? You think it's just a, is it just such a small number of people who have that kind of artistic ability? Yeah, that and and maybe we don't foster it as a culture. So there's just you know lots of people you know cranking out of college with you know, CS degrees and very few with arts degrees focused on building websites. Or I think it's, I think it's also re related to the whole barrier to entry thing. And this goes back to the Java and um, the Ruby discussion in, in the sense that there's a much lower barrier to entry to start putting yourself off as a, as a designer than there is to start putting yourself off as a programmer, right? So mm -hmm. all, all, you, all you need is a copy of Photoshop and you can call yourself a designer. So there's going to be a lot more people to sift through. Um, to kind of get to the good ones. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I found finding good designer to be extremely frustrating and, uh, it's just, just, it's so hard. Um, there's so few of them. Um, but you know, coming from being, uh, being the non-designer, I guess, I, you know, that's just my perspective, but I bet from a business, from a business perspective, it's probably, I don't know. That'd be interesting. I mean, from Taylor's perspective, yeah, it's hard to find good designers, but I, I guess just finding hard, good, good people is hard any, regardless. <laughs> yeah. You know, just finding good people who are skilled at what, they're, what they are supposed to be skilled at and actually, you know, you know, get shit done and get it done on time and are committed to finishing. And it's hard. Well, what do you think about honor systems like on Elance or Odesk where you can, you can have a look through their work and you can have a look through the ratings that other users have given them? What do you think? Do you think those those systems are any good, and do they they help to find to finding these good people? Um, to, either, to either Taylor or Jason, it, it, it's tough. I've used <laughs> anybody. <laughs> I've used both Odesk and Elance. Um, they seem populated nowadays, not with freelancers, but with like companies. Yeah, um, and so the the ratings apply to an individual that maybe worked at a company, but that, that individual isn't there anymore. Um, so yeah, I don't find Elance. I haven't used either of those in over a year where I used to use them a lot. Um, but I, a year ago, I did not find them, the quality of people coming out of there. Uh, good. It was like satisfactory people. Right. Yeah. I've never, I, d I, d I don't think I can think of a term where a time, I mean, I've used them a few times. Like I've never got fantastic quality. Well, you used to be on Elance, right? Uh, that's how you got your first contract in America, right? My first contract in America, yeah. So, you were on Elance. But how can you compete on Elance? It's like, it's like minimum wage rates. Well, the, uh, the way that I did it was I would quote for like a couple of hundred dollar jobs and just basically get, get some very low level work and then you get to know a couple of people and then that's usually going to turn into more work when they see how good you are compared to the rest I of the see. So, was, yeah. so, so Elance was like your loss leader. Basically, yeah. That's an exactly. interesting approach, right? As long as it's not too big of a project that you're committing to, you're like, all right, I mean, essentially you're doing it for free. It's almost like doing it on spec, right? I'll do this for, you know, 20 bucks an hour or something. It's just, 
Yeah, and you don't know who it's, you know, you, you, do, you don't know who it's for as well, so it is a bit of a risk. How many, how many of those projects did you do? Uh, one. <laughs> one? Oh, one, and it worked out. So a sample of one, and you've extrapolated an entire uh, 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 strategy from it. I like it. Okay. Well, as a provider, you've got to pay to use Elance, right? Yeah, you do. And they, they try to get you to pay for different things like, oh, you want to be in this category and this category? Each one's 20 bucks. Well, I, I paid a, actually um, a lot to get um, interview, uh, interviewed as a UI designer for this, for this one company. And I think I had to pay something like eight credits or something. So it was, it was like 20, 20 bucks or something like that just to get this one position. And um, they said no. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, well, that's... Well, you had to pay, yeah. Jeez. It kind of feels unsatisfactory. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a major drawback, I think, to both of those systems. Is it's a disincentive for quality people to go there and pay to get a job. Well, the other thing with the Odesk is that they take snapshots of you every ten minutes. <laughs> so that's they take snapshots of your screen every ten minutes, right? So that's okay for the employer, the person who's finding the work. But in terms of the the worker, it's kind of irritating to think that someone's actually looking at your screen. You know. Yeah, you'd be kind of distracted. It kind of would throw you off. You know, like, oh, I better move my, scroll my editor a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Select some text, you know, just to make sure that they understand that I'm here and I'm thinking, you know? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What happens if you're thinking? Because quite, quite a lot of the time I will just be thinking about a problem and staring at the screen. Right. right. And that's probably the most valuable time that they're getting out of you. Right. Thinking as opposed to just typing. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, I'd like to ask... Uh, Taylor, a little bit more about how you got into the entrepreneurial space in the first place. So you said you were in, in sort of the corporate world, and what what got you started on uh, on Govit? How did you how did you make the leap? What was the impetus for that? You know, I think I wanted to do my own business for a long time, um, and at that time, it was you know the start of Web 2.0, and it, it just kind of seemed like doing a web business was, I don't know, the, the easiest route for me. Mm-hmm. And you just, you had, and you had this, uh, this idea, and you said, all right, well, I'm just going to go and, and use some of my savings and, and try and get something built, and that's, and that's how it got going. Yeah, exactly. Now, Print Friendly, you started, it was, what, a year after Govit? Yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. I think I started it about a year and a half ago with the idea and building it and then launched it a year ago. Oh, so it about six months to, to launch it? Yeah. Concept. Now, you, you know, you, you, in an email, you, you, you gave a little background on it and you, to us and you said that you have, you're making, what, about 1700 a month on it so far? About yeah, in fact, this month uh, I'm going to hit over 2000 See, that's not bad. I mean, you know, how, so how long, how, it's, it was, how long has it been launched now? A year. A and year and near 2000 a month. That doesn't sound bad at all. And that's through, through advertising, yeah. is it? Yes. There, yeah. There's AdSense on the print confirmation window. So you don't really have a lot of customer support since it's free in that way. Right. Which is good. So it can scale real easy. So it's kind of on autopilot, I guess, right? I mean, there probably isn't a whole lot other than just trying to continually improve it. Yeah, it has been. In fact, uh, yeah, I was telling uh, Jason in an email, Justin, about how about six months ago, you know, I had, I had uh, applied to Y Combinator and gotten interviewed and, you know, felt like I almost got in. But, uh, you know, they were looking, f- you know, they were asking, what's the, the big idea? How are you going to make a billion dollars with this? And I, was, right. I had no clue at the time um, and I still don't. 
um, so then uh, after that, I kind of, you know, shopped it around. It was getting some decent traction, but not not tons of traffic. Um, and I couldn't get, you know, I almost got a, a company to buy it, one of the widget companies for um, 80K okay. plus uh, some, you know, stocks and stuff in their company. And when that fell through, I tried a couple more and then that didn't work out. So at that point, I was like, oh, you know, it's over. It's time to go back to work for the man. Right. Um, and so Which is I such an that. awesome feeling, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like moving back in with your parents when you're like 30 or something. It's like, oh, ADK would have been about wouldn't have been a great deal though because if it's already earning the two, you know, it's already earning 24. Yeah, you know, so it's. I'm glad you didn't cut that deal. Well, wait, 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 wait. When we go back in time, when was the offer made? How much were you making per uh, per month when the offer was made? Three hundred a month. Yeah, so that would have been a really nice multiple. Right. Okay. Angel. Now, yeah, it's over time, but of course, that three hundred could have just been grown to like three hundred and fifty, <laughs> in which case it would have been like a a, a govet regret, you know? We're like, exactly. oh my god, I'm making a grand total of a few grand a year, and I could have had eighty grand in the pocket now and moved on to my next idea. So, so you've got like five hundred thousand users using this thing. How, how did you how did you grow it to five hundred thousand a month? What, what, you know, so so another one of the the takeaways I learned from Govit um, was distribution. You know, building distribution into your startup from you know the concept. So when I built Print Friendly, you know, the whole idea of putting a URL into the site. Um, the only reason I built it that way was to tell the story, so you could essentially learn what it does by trying it. The whole goal is for people to stick the button on their website, and that's really what it's all about. Um, mm. So the, yeah, distribution, distribution, distribution. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's interesting. That's a good. Um, and, uh, you know, are you going to focus exclusively on print friendly or are you moving on to other projects and let this go on autopilot or what, what's your plan? Well, yeah, it's kind of an interesting time now because, yeah, so I put it down and I was like, okay, back to work for the man. And then, you know, four months later, I'm looking at the AdSense reports and seeing that it's, you know, 15K or, you know, uh, 1.5K, thinking, whoa, what's going on here? You know, and it's just slowly growing. Um, At this point now, I'm, you know, so I just am in the process of hiring a developer um, to do some work on it. And uh, I've got uh, a few plans to see if I can build it up a little bit more. I I think uh, it's got maybe halfway to its potential. Um, right. Well, the the other thing is, I mean, I don't know whether you thought of thought about it from the, from this viewpoint, but it does seem to be kind of growing, and it does seem to be going, you know, growing in an, in a nice exponential curve. Uh, oh, oh, you just you you okay there? Yes, just, sorry. Held. Okay. Yeah. Um. So with with that kind of traffic, five hundred thousand users, you could essentially channel it into some other venture that you were working on. So if you had if you had a venture uh, that had a different angle. You could potentially leverage that traffic, so you could you could also get um, ad revenue, but you could also kind of uh, let's say seed some new idea with the user base. Totally, yeah. Especially if it was related, um, but I guess even if for SEO or yeah, you know, in a few a few months back, I, I don't know how long ago it was, but we interviewed Pete Michaud, and the, the title of the episode was uh, "Retired at uh, 25," I think. And what he had done is created a number of of sort of independent um, revenue sources. They had some eBooks and things like that. And each one of them, just once, once you create them, they're kind of on autopilot. Um, once you set up the website and created, you know, 
finish the uh, ebook. Then he said, you know, you, you, his point of it was like I, he doesn't have to maintain it. There's really no maintenance to do it. And even if each one only makes a thousand dollars a month or five hundred or whatever. You, know, you got a handful of these things going, or a dozen of these going, and you got a great diversified uh, income source. And yeah, he, he was pulling in around 5000 a month from something like, I don't know, between 10 and 20 projects. Was it that many? Was it 10 uh, or 20? I thought it was, it was at least 10, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, I think it was approaching that. I got the, I, yeah. If I remember correctly, it was a little less than 10, but they were shooting okay. towards um, a dozen or something. But he, he had, already reached a, had already reached, I think, like a 5K mark or something, mm. and that was... Um, not only maybe six months or maybe a year after they started, right? Yeah. Something like that. And uh, it's almost like print friendly is that kind of a, a product in that, you know, you, it, it doesn't require a lot of maintenance. It doesn't require customer support. Um, it's, you can watch this thing slowly grow, but then you can go on and start another couple of ideas along the same lines of having them being sort of low maintenance um, yeah. products or services rather. That's not a bad approach. So let's hear a bit about um, the uh, Y Combinator experience. I'd be very or the interview experience. How did that go? You, I've heard a lot of people talk about it. I mean, it's like this three-minute interview or five-minute interview or something like that. Yeah, it. Yeah, I guess mine lasted about ten minutes. Um, and yeah, it's you know very cool. You're very pumped up, um, and they're very casual. It, oh. It's very easy. It's more like a discussion. Right. And, you know, I mean, one thing you would probably have going against you is that they almost always prefer that you have at least one co-founder. Two to three is sort of what they're looking yeah. for. And yes. they really don't like the one. They just feel like one person, it's too easy for one person to give up, get overwhelmed. Um, just, just, it's just under, uh, it's almost just underpowered. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's, there are examples of plenty of solo founders who have been extremely successful. But I think from their perspective, it's just a way of removing that risk that is much greater is much greater chance that you can find entrepreneurs that are successful as a group than you can find solo entrepreneurs that are successful. Yeah. And I think that makes sense. Um, how I got around it is I, I guess I lied, not totally. Okay. Um, but the guy that I contracted with, he was on board with it, um, to come out and be a co-founder. Right. I see. Well, that's the thing is that when you're, when you're at this sort of stage of, you know, it's just it's just a very early beta product or, or an idea or prototype. You know, the the team itself isn't fully formed. It's not like you've all quit your jobs and signed you know some big you know uh, uh, corporate or operating agreement. You've just you're all this sort of handshake on the fact that you're trying to get this thing going. So I don't think it's. I, I bet you a lot of these uh, Y Combinator startups when they came in and said, "Oh, we're on a team." It's like you know they're a team with the stipulation that they get funding from my combinator <laughs> yeah i think they, they probably have an idea that that's the way that it's going to be played out you know you know and uh i'm sure that if you came back to your developer and say hey we got we, you know why combinator wants to fund this or you want to come in and actually make this your focus i mean you know that would be a pretty good shot of that happening right so what, what were you doing is it just a kind of slightly change direction a little bit what were you doing before you um decided to go into the the govit experience yeah so uh I, I got my degree in psychology, um, and then I had to get a real job. So uh, I started working in the marketing department at Monster Cable and quickly positioned myself into a, like a web designer role. And then I and did that. Go on, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. That, so then I did that for uh, some years and kind of moved up the corporate ladder into like internet marketing manager and then eventually product manager. 
Interesting. And has has psychology play, played a part in in your um, tech career? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's funny. You guys talked about it on a previous show. Um, Jason was talking about the experiment of when you know you got a line of people and you know you want to cut into that line and you give somebody a reason they'll be more accepting than not. And I re- remember one of my favorite classes in psychology was the psychology of influence. Uh, and yeah, that was one of the experience, experiments there where um, yeah, basically you would just say to the person, to the person you're cutting in front of, you know, I'm, I'd like to cut in line because I need to cut in line. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a hurry. I need to make some copies. <laughs> yeah. And just saying that because and then statement, yeah, would make a difference. Um, but yeah, it, it's absolutely crucial in interface design, you know, and user experience. And that's the big buzzword today. And I so, think- so how does that how, how does that apply to print fr- printer friendly then if we if we talk about that? Yeah. So so, for example, the fact that you can go to print friendly and put in a URL, um, to create a print preview, that's really the least effective way. And the the last thing you want to do, really, you want to either get the bookmarklet or stick the button on your site. But it just really helps tell the story uh, to be able to actually just use it. You know, no words, no copy, just stick a URL and boom, you get it. Yeah, I see. So it's just to- you're totally, it, you're, it's by example, you're, you're showing, not telling. Yeah. Right. That's a big deal. Show, don't tell. People don't like to read a lot of copy. You know, it's just it's too slow. It's it's painful. People they're just going to move on. People are impatient, and um, you want to engage people immediately. And uh, and there's no way to engage people more quickly than uh, with images, I guess, right? Well, I think even better than images is uh, letting people play with stuff. Okay, sure. I mean, images and then maybe play. Or, you know, it's like you can see immediately what it is, and then it's just like you'll click here and you're going or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think as a user, you know, my first choice is if I can get to a site and just understand what it does by doing it. Uh, if, if I can't, then I want a demo video. Uh, and if I got to read a bunch of copy, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> yeah. You just, you know, you're just going to move on. There's 15 other things that you're interested in looking at on the web at any given time. So, and that's yeah. another reason why any, any problem that you try and solve in your business should be very small because if it's, if you're trying to solve if you're trying to bite off more than you can chew, it's going to be impossible to create the kind of page that you're talking about, right? What do you mean you, by that? Well, you, you, let's, let's say you want to, okay, for example, the company, that, the startup that I used to work at called Moyeno, it was basically the social, the social network for knowledge, social networking around knowledge. And essentially, because we didn't pick a subject or a specific thing, because it was so generic, it was very difficult to explain what the business was and this was a real real problem so basically customers would come to the site and they'd be oh what am i supposed to do here just start speaking about something what am i supposed to start speaking about you know and it whereas if you go to printerfriendly.com it's just like okay enter in a url and go and it all makes sense because it's just a small little thing but you know some of those sites have actually worked i mean it wasn't like hubspot and squidoo do you know squidoo pages hub pages is that right okay yeah and Squidoo does something similar to that. Is that right? With well, they're kind of like they're kind of like blogs or wikis, except for there's one owner of one page. So basically, Squidoo right. is a very good, a very good example of what we were trying to do with Wayno, but and and also Null, Google Null. But yeah. the, the thing is, is that Squidoo works because they have writers that like they're owned by they're, they're li- the guy who started that is a, a writer. He really understands writing. 
And What's his, his name? I find it's I'm blanking Seth on. Seth Godin. Yeah, that's right, Seth Godin. Right, and so everything is everything is all the journeys are very cleverly done with you being a writer. You know, like as in promoting the concept of writing and starting this thing. So this was knowledge that we didn't have in house. We didn't have that kind of knowledge. So those journeys we didn't get right. So that's what I'm just saying. It, it, it's possible, but it's hard. Well, yeah, any, I'm, I'm anyone, just I'm just wondering if I'm just wondering if the lesson is not that you can't do. Um, non-niche products if it has to do more with how it's executed um yeah, i guess you know because the thing is that you look at these failures and one thing it's so so often the case is that we have such a small sample space or we have one example and then we just try and extract these lessons from it which might be the wrong lessons it's that that sort of that you know a cargo cult um you know mentality that you know you you know the cargo cult theory we've i think we've talked about that justin right do you know do you know what, do you know what that is not off the top of my head the cargo cult. I, 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 here's a, here's a quick summary of it. Is the way I remember it is that I think during World War II, the uh, the Allies, at least the U.S., had some bases sort of in some of these islands in the South Pacific, and there were native people, um, you know, that populated a lot of those islands, and they could see these plane. You know, they would build the the Allied forces were, um, would build these um, you know runways, and they had these little because um, there were sometimes they're like. Um, Shipping supplies to uh, the you know forward bases and 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 the um, and the armies and stuff. So they would see these guys standing out in the runway with these flags, kind of waving in the air in this little control tower, and they would see these these planes come and land and drop these supplies and land with all these supplies and take off. And then after the war ended and these little makeshift um, airports and runways were shut down. They started, they looked at it and they said, oh, you know, we got to go there. We got to wave these things in the air. We build like a little control tower with this guy has like coconuts on his ears or something. And all of a sudden these giant bird comes in and, and, and lands with supplies. Right. It's sort of the superficial understanding of what really okay. is going right. on. Right. And so it's a cargo cult, which is, you know, the cargo, the cult of the cargo, like the, the cargo birds or the planes that deliver the cargo. So anyway, the, and, and you hear people talk about that every once in a while. It's like you look at there's so little data or there's, or about something and you try and extract lessons from it. Or there's not just so little data, but there's such little true understanding of why something worked or why it didn't work. Yet everyone agrees that on, on the lessons that we learned, which may, those may or may not even be the right lessons. So, Jay, so Taylor, I know you had a, a couple of things to say about that. Um. Well, I was thinking about, uh, you were asking about psychology, um, you know, and I've been thinking about something recently, kind of a, a new idea. And also one of the, th one of the things I'm trying to do for the next idea is um, instead of, you know, I think I made a mistake of going too niche with both Govit and print friendly. Um, and I'd like to, you know, it's, it's cool to go niche if um, in some cases you can make a, a little bit of money perhaps, um, but it's also fun and exciting to go big. Um, and I've been looking at like things like uh, Farmville and trying to figure out, you know, why are people going so nuts for it? Um, and I think what people are going crazy for is that you're creating something, uh, you're watching it grow, and then you're getting a reward for it. It's achievement porn. Yeah. That's what, that's what we, we, we've discussed that on a number of shows. Just the people enjoy clicking buttons and do, I mean essentially it's work is what Farmville is right yeah <laughs> it's like working in it's like working in social services <laughs> and you've got to fill out forms and do stuff but yeah. somehow it's satisfying yeah no one wants to work on a farm <laughs> <It's> <laughs> <right>. <laughs> hard hard work right um I wish so there's like an article, there was just an article on that I wish I'd read it was like the 10 ways that Zynga um designs for um 
uh, I don't know, interactivity or engage, user engagement. And uh, I just printed out what I haven't read it. So that would have been the So you'd say, you'd say Farmville was, wasn't niche then? No. I think it's tapping into kind of a bigger, you know, psychological, you know, phenomena or, you know, human nature. Um, and I think that's kind of cool. Interesting. I don't think Car- Farmville's cool personally, but, uh, but yeah, there. Oh, another way I think that happens is, uh, you know, for my contract, I'm contracting right now um, and we use Google Optimizer. So I'll do a design, build out a UI and then we'll test it in Optimizer. And I love it. I go to Optimizer like five times a day, even though you shouldn't do that. There's no point to go five times a day, every day. Uh, but what, I is just it, what, is, it. what does the Optimizer do? Talk us through it. Uh, so Optimizer allows you, it's a Google product and you basically take two pages and you change something about the page or you change everything and you could do uh, A-B testing or uh, nth degree testing. And basically you just test out the, your different ideas uh, and measure it based on, you know, what you consider a conversion, whether it's buying a product or filling out a form or whatever. Now, what, what you said, uh, there's A-B testing and then what you call nth degree testing? Yeah, so you could have like seven different versions. Okay. Okay. Um, it's A-B testing. You just have two versions. Nth degree, you have any number. Now, what, do you use the nth degree just sometimes because there's just, rather than, it's just easier to test out an idea that way? Just have like a, you can just create a bunch of variations and you just get more information more quickly or, or what? Yeah. It takes longer. But like, uh, did you? There was like six months ago, remember that guy who did the test? I think you guys also talked about it. Yeah, you did in a couple of shows ago where it was follow me on Twitter, follow me on Twitter now. And he had like yeah, right. four or five different versions. Um, yeah, so you can do that. Twitter here. You, should, you should follow me on Twitter here, I think was the optimal way to say it. Is that right? Is, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. yeah, yeah, you got it. Yeah, you, no, you should follow me on Twitter now. No, here. Oh, here. here, I have the link on here. You okay. should. No, yeah, it was like that was the right combination of a of sort of like a command, like follow me on Twitter or you know or whatever. It was just a was this turned out to work the best. It was Dustin Curtis. Was that Dustin Curtis who did that? I can't remember, but I did I try to use it. It didn't work out for me. I just got some angry person commenting saying, "Don't tell me what to do." I just think, no, yeah, well, <laughs> yes, people. Well, you're always, like I said, you're. I, I, I meant to bring this all the time. You're always getting in these tiffs with people online. So I think yeah. it's just, I think it's just your experience. Yeah. <laughs> you attract the, uh, the 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 little fights. So um um actually, I don't have anything to say. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, fill, fill that dead air, Justin. <laughs> well, I'll ramble on if, if you'll allow. Yes, yeah, please go. do. So I'd like to do, so, so yeah, so I'm kind of thinking about three different things. Maybe one, branching out print-friendly into a couple of other applications. Maybe a simple email button. Little s- simple things like that that might, you know, build a couple of more small revenue streams. But then also maybe I'd like to start uh, a new idea or a couple of new ideas. Um, one is based on you know, the concept of creating something, watching it grow and getting a reward. Um, another thing that I think is changing um, is consumption based things like like with the iPad. Uh, you guys were talking about, you know, is this revolutionary or is it not? Um, one of the ways that it, it is kind of or I'm, I'm guessing it's going to kind of change things is it's really just about consumption versus, you know, a computer where you, it's more of a tool to do or a platform to do anything. Um, and I think, yeah, people are going to be consuming more. 
Yeah. Right. You know, As if they weren't consuming enough already. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just going to amp up the, cons- the consumption rate. Um, yeah. And it, it goes back to that old argument of, you know, content owners are king. You know, if you, if you own, king, yeah. yeah, content's king. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you, Taylor. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's it. Um, I don't have any specific ideas for those, though. So, well, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of the guy who did Bingo Creator. Um, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Justin? Do you remember? Um, I'm blanking on his name, too. I'm having a bad day with names. The guy who did Bingo Creator, he... You know, the bingo card creator concept seems such like uh, just a non-idea, just like a, a just such a small idea. But he just tweaked it out. He optimized it, he optimized his traffic, optimized everything about it with tons of, um, of analytical work and using Google Optimizer and all kinds of A-B testing. And he just was able, through that method... Um, to really grow it to some point he doesn't you know it was a self-sustaining um, uh, you know venture where he no longer had to work that he it replaces his full-time work and it just it's kind of interesting that like you know with 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 something like print friendly which you've done it sounds like you haven't done a whole lot um, in the in, in terms of optimizing you know the um, business development side of things and you've already got the point of two thousand a month that by just working a little harder on on those types of things and optimizing your traffic and, and everything that you could get that up to you know five ten fifteen grand a month within a couple years um, you know I have a friend of mine who a uh, guy who moved here from Brazil and uh, he worked uh, he had like a, a work visa with a, with a um, couple guys that had a, a cigar bar and he is just a an absolute master of optimizing operations so he he took this thing that was this thing that was kind of struggling to make a profit and he optimized everything about the operation to it was incredibly profitable so it's like a lot of times you like, well you can't make any money you know doing certain types of businesses well it's all about execution so it's like you know how how do you track you know how much they're pouring for drinks and where do you stack the glasses and where do you put the chairs and every little thing was able to make every little change and improvement was able to make Make it so they were a little more efficient, made a little more money, could get more people in and out, could could do everything, but lost less money on over pouring or whatever it was, and it was the same kind of thing. It's like, you know, a lot of people will try things, but they don't really work to optimize the operation itself to really make it efficient, make it profitable. And uh, I think that's kind of what the guy, uh, the bingo card creator, is an example of. It's just optimizing something that's relatively simple, nothing spectacular about the idea at all, but he just really executed it well. Yeah, that's where I'm at with, or the stage I'm at with Print Friendly is, uh, you know, what you see today is what we launched with a year ago. Um, and yeah, hopefully I can make some tweaks and grow it a little. Well, it's pretty interesting that it's scaled to 500,000 monthly users if it's something that you built a year ago. So what you built a year ago obviously was correct. Right. Yeah. Had the right idea. So, but yeah, but, but it, it, what's great about it is that not only is it is it making money and growing with little effort in his point. So, so Taylor, if you have ideas, you can implement them probably relatively quickly and see if things work. But then, right, you can try these other ideas. So I don't know. I, I, I kind of like that. I When Pete Michaud initially was telling us about how he created these sort of non low maintenance to no maintenance revenue generates. I'm like, Hey, that's actually kind of good. It's sort of the lots of revenue trickles that add up to a revenue stream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you're diversified too. As, yeah. as he, when he, he pointed out, he's like, look, if any one, two or three of these things go down, I'm still good. I'm in good shape. They're all completely yeah. independent of one another. 
Yeah, which is unusual in the startup world because usually, you know, you're told and everyone's trying to swing for the fence um, versus just getting on base. Hey, I've got a question for you guys. It's kind of off yeah. topic, but I'm trying to come up with a price point for my board game Swarm, the iPad game. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just wondering if you have any ideas how much I should charge for it. Well, I think <laughs> you should have a free version and that they only can play a certain, you know, has certain limitations because for, for starters, because I think people aren't going to buy a game like that. I don't think, or not many people are going to want to buy a game like that when they have never played it and they don't even understand why it would necessarily be fun. So you got to have a free version, but then you have to have something to scale up to where you make money, I think. You think so? Because I was thinking of just having a paid version. I, yeah. I, I didn't really like the idea of a free version. I, think, I, think that, I don't think that's going to work for you because I just don't think anyone's going to... How are people going to find it and get excited about it if nobody's going to try it? Why, why are people going to pay for something that they've never tried and they don't even... It's not like it's... Um, well, I mean, I mean, the thing is... Uh, sorry to, to interrupt, but... Like, there's lots of games like that that people have never tried and that, you know, that are on the App Store and that are for the iPad and the only version is a paid version. I mean, that's what that's the way iPad App Store works. Well, well why don't you like uh, having some limited version that has, that's free to get people addicted to it? Because I don't... I'd rather just make money from it. Yeah, but that's fine. But, you know, you might get... You might get it might vastly increase the number of sales if you can actually tease people into it. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked to, uh, remember we talked to Central Desktop, we talked to Isaac and Arnold from Central Desktop, and they dramatically increased their uh, their traffic and then there were people who okay. came through the pipe because they went, win, because at first they gave nothing away for free. And then okay, when they had like a limited free version. Let's get Taylor's, Taylor's thoughts on this. Yeah, I'm kind of with, with Jason. I think it's with so many free options out there, it, it's tough to try, you know, to pay for something to try it. Um, versus try something for free. You're going to be... So, com- you got to be like a crack dealer, Justin. Think of yourself a crack dealer. You got to give them a little crack and I'm addicted, you know? Okay, so how do I limit... How or do I limit, have a brand, yeah. How do I limit the free version then? Uh, I don't know. Like, uh, you know, like a lot of these games, it's like, you know, you, you can't do higher levels. And you, you, you get through the basics level. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, you know your game better. Are there ways to limit it down? Not that I can think of. I mean, it's like saying, you know, you, you, can free, you can have a free version of chess. So, you know, what you, you don't give them pawns <laughs> on the free <laughs> version. I mean, it's like, how, do, how would you do that? Mm. I don't Should, know. I mean, it's so hard to get people to use stuff. Um, have you thought about just, you know, having like a grandfather's, you know, grandfathering people in where, you know, you launch it and it's for free and then after you get some traction and people are sharing it and getting other people to download it so they can play it you know after six months charging you oh, know, so the, the first users get it free here's, here's my theory my theory is I like that is idea that, Taylor by the way that's actually a good idea okay right. so I'm, I'm not so sure I do like that I mean my, my theory is is that for something for free people are going to be less likely to make the investment of kind of learning it because it's it requires a similar level of learning that chess does right because it's it's a you know it's a complicated mm. strategy game, so I sort of think that actually it should cost and that it should be a very small cult of people who who buy it and who try it out and because they've paid they're going to make the investment to go through the training because it's got a little training section, and then they'll with any luck review it and and help you know help give the feedback so they'll become invested via the community via the website via the comments, and so essentially it'll cultivate a community of people who all 
have given some value and want to get some value back and then gradually build it up in a small, small core way like that. That's my theory. Yeah, well, I it's guess a nice the theory. Starts. I just don't know how you're going to get any traction. Like, how do you get those first hundred or yeah. thousand users? But I mean, that's it's funny because there is so many games in the in the app store that there is no free version, and you know you don't know how to play it until you buy it. And you know, like you, Sega don't Sega don't release their games for free. But I suppose that's that's a Sega. very different concept. That's Sega, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm not a gamer myself. I don't play games uh, like that. And uh, so, so you take my input for, for, with a grain of salt, I guess. But um, I don't know. I, yeah, I think it's, I mean, what the, you could always try. You could, you could try, give it a few months and just sell it. And if it doesn't, and, and don't give a free version. And then if it's not taken off like you want it to, you know, you could say, okay, we're going to do a limited time, you know, free version. And the people who, um, you know, the grandfathered in, but after all, we're going to pay, and you could try that next, right? You could try it your way first, and if it doesn't move... I was almost thinking of putting it in for, like, twice the price of the of the most expensive app, just to make it stand out. That's kind of an interesting strategy. That's, like, the classic, uh, yeah, like, uh, Absolute Vodka, when they launched, they basically took the price point of the most pop, you know, highest price vodka and doubled it. And then recently, uh, what's that other one that just came out like a couple years ago, the French one, which is insanely expensive. They did the same thing to Absolute. Right. Um, and yeah, when I worked at Monster Cable, if they're a manufacturer of, you know, ridiculously priced commodity goods, um, and they have a very strict uh, pricing policy with their retailers, and they you know, are aggressive about maintaining that because, you know, it changes people's perception if it's expensive. Well, exactly, exactly. And, and no one else can make this because, you know, no one else is going to invent this board game. Only I can invent it. You know what I'm saying? And if they do, yeah. they're going to end up in a lawsuit, basically. So yeah. g- given that I can be the only supplier of it and that I can change people's perception in that way, why shouldn't I? The challenge becomes, you know, selling it at that point. You know, so Monster Cable and Absolute and the other vodka companies spend a lot of money on advertising um, training, you know, depending on the type of product, but co- sort of cultivating the perception, cultivating, yeah, the and getting the the message out there. It's like balsamic mock-ups is around, I think, seventy nine dollars, which is an ex- you know, you'd think that's an expensive price point. You know, you'd like I'd never heard of software going out for that price point before that. Really? I mean, uh, well, uh, software not- often comes three, four, five. I mean, even individual software costs a few hundred bucks. Thousand dollars? No, I'd, I'd heard of Adobe and large large companies selling software for that price, but not shareware makers or individuals. Oh yeah, all the time you well, think like all these sort of like um, uh, like uh, database interfacing apps uh, for uh, uh, like you know kind of like uh, I don't know what they're called, but you know, like enterprise manager for SQL Server, the same equivalent for like MySQL and stuff. Those are like two hundred, three hundred, four hundred dollars. You know that kind of stuff always costs. Yeah, yeah. niche niche stuff will will sell. Like I just bought VMware for 80 bucks, you know, an app I don't even want to have. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. And um, I paid for this stuff, you know, out of my own pocket, you know, Justin, I mean, it wasn't a big deal, but something that solved a problem that I needed solved. I suppose that's one difference. Like a board game isn't solving a problem. Right. You're just, the only problem is boredom, <laughs> you know, and, and the thing is you're competing against a lot of other solutions to that problem. Um, and, look, and it's and a I, new idea, which is tough. 
Yeah, so you have to spend money on 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 marketing either by spending uh, one way or another, either by giving it away for free in some way, or by marketing, paying for marketing dollars. It's like some some way you have to get the word out. So I don't know. I mean, you know, these are all all these are just guesses and theories. So you know, you can try them. You know, the best thing is like there's a couple different theories that can work. Overprice it, under give it away for free, do this, do that. But luckily, you can just try it. Right? Yeah. And that's and, easy. Hey, Justin, I just spent about four months ago, I bought this game. I just sent you the link. It's called Commander Europe at War. Uh, okay. I like strategy games. And this okay. is like an old school turn-based. I mean, it looks like uh, the first game I bought on my Apple 2CI. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you're moving tanks and planes and boats around this field. It's on a grid. Yeah. No graphics, nothing new. Um, but it's so hard to find these turn-based strategy games that are, you know, well-made, you know, a good balance okay. um, that uh, they're able to charge 50 bucks for it because there's not that many people that are buying it, but there is a base of people who are into that. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, 50 bucks, may, because my, essentially Swarm is a, is a turn-based strategy game, but it's like a strategy game, like, you know, more along the lines of chess mm-hmm. than, than Command and Conquer. Right. But, uh, well, this is Commander Europe Award. Different than Com- Command and Conquer's uh, a real-time strategy game. Yeah, not no to, get all, not yeah. to get geeky on you, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so the, that- the amazing thing is, this old-school game uh, can sell for virtually the same price as StarCraft II, which is coming out. And you were happy to pay. You were happy to pay fifty bucks. I wasn't happy to pay it, but I couldn't find it on BitTorrent. <laughs> no, you, you wouldn't find day. something like that. Yeah, but it's. I think actually, I think what goes around comes around. So it's good to support these kind of developers, especially if yes. you're if you're in business and you're a software developer yourself. Like I always kind of make a point of buying these things, um, just because it's good. I think it's good karma. Well, it's. Uh, I think Peldy uh, had said, uh, you know, that reason he likes to pay for software is he want to make sure that these software vendors stay around and stay alive. He finds it frustrating when these companies give us stuff away for free because if he likes the product, he just becomes. Then he has to be very concerned, or he has to worry that they're not going to be around to support it. Right. You know, they're just going to. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to take us into the the moral thing. I was just joking. I know. Um, no, I, I kind of felt that. <laughs> you know, but it, it reminds me of what Commander Europe at War did. They they did allow you to play the game for, actually, just eight hours, which I thought was ridiculous and annoying. I would say, you know, let people. If they would have let me play it for a week, I would have totally gotten hooked. Um, but That's a good the, idea. Yeah, I like that one. So basically yeah. a free version that lets you play it for a week. But the thing is, people can just... All of the data is held within the game on the, on the, on the iPad or, with, or on the iPhone. So they just delete it and install it again. Well, well you no, can't identify do. them. Yeah, can't you send it by the 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 the, the, um, the device ID from the iPad or the is it gets sent back to your website? That's sort of the unlocking, right? Oh, okay. And they've already unlocked it once, then that's it, and they have to pay for it. So you get a free version, and it allows them, you know, fifty games or something like that. So then they can, and and what happens if they're not near a net connection? They can't play it. No, this is just the initial time. So the to, so the initial time that you, that, that, that when, when they install it, the first thing it does, it goes back, it get, it captures the device ID, sends it back to your website as a registration, and that's their initial registration, and they get their free fifty games, and and then it's unlocked, right? And then 
the, this, the, this, the well, iPad itself, it saves locally like how many games they played once they've hit their 20 or 50 free games and it's over and they have to pay for um, the real version. And if they try and delete it and reinstall it, when it tries to, when it, at the install process it goes, it checks your website, say, oh, you've already registered in this, you've used up your free games for this iPad. That's your solution. But when they, but couldn't they just run it? I mean, I suppose they they could run it without the internet, right? And yeah, yeah. Well, the only time the only time that it, it contacts them is is at the um is at the in, when they install the app at the installation prompt. They download the app right when they turned on the very first time. It, it, the the app calls back to your main website and just reg- checks in the database and see to see if the uh, there's an entry with the device ID. Yeah, okay. or there's an internal counter, either by time or number of games. But I mean, if they delete the app and restart from scratch, there's... Oh, uh, right, right, right. So by, by storing it on his, on his database, basically, because you can't change the device ID, and yeah. his stuff is remote, so, and it only needs to connect once. And if they're, if they're downloading your app, then you're going to be connected during that process. But what, what I'm saying is this, right, is that they can install it, and then turn the internet off, and then start using it, because it couldn't connect to the server. Well, look, like I said... But just it can don't, count. Yeah, look... I, don't, all you have to do is, on the free version, when they install it, is you set a max number of games if it's the free version. It's an internal thing that's saved. Okay? Right. Yeah. 50 games. And when it goes down to zero, they either have to buy the real version. And, or they have to buy and they have to get something. It locks input. down. It locks down. And, then, and when you do the purchase, it goes through the web, it goes through the purchasing process, and some key or some value gets sent to it and just unlocks it locally in, in some, you know, your local storage or whatever. I mean, I guess something else that you could do is, because it is the free version, maybe you could make it so that it would only turn on when it was online. No, when, so when, why, when why, why do that? Why do that? Well, well, because then that's the only way you can absolutely guarantee by making connection to the server, for example, as you, as you correctly said, you send the unique ID and you can see whether they've had it for more than a week or not. Well, that doesn't matter though, right? Because I mean, if, if, if you connect to the server when you install, okay, and you have a, you have a value set and in, in, in your local storage system that says you're allowed 50 games, okay? Every time you play a game, it decrements that counter. When that counter gets to zero, you cannot play the game. Yeah, but... You can just keep on installing it and resetting that no, counter to because 50. every time they install it, every time you go through the install process, every time you turn the game on for the first time, it will go, and for the very first time of that particular installation, it will, it will make a call, it'll make an Ajax call to your website and to see if that device ID has a record in your database. If it yeah. does... So they just turn the internet off. So they install it, they turn the internet off, then, 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 it won't they, work. then, it won't work. then they open up the game. No, it won't work. Uh, it, it, it's disabled. It's disabled assault until it goes and says you're okay. Until you get that's a thumb. What that's what I said. <laughs> it only, has to be connected to the net. <laughs> no, no, only the only one time. <laughs> okay. You're okay. not listening. Are right. you not, do you not understand? Are you, I do. Yeah. I do understand. I'm, 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 you're saying the same thing as me, which is that no. when they when they launch the game for the first time, it does have to. There does have to be an internet connection. No, you were saying you have to always be on the internet every single time you play. That that's okay. not true. Okay. Only I, the first. Time. I didn't really mean that. I just meant the first time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's that's your solution. That's your solution. That's how you limit it, and that's how hey, you. Taylor, give- what, what do you think of this show? I like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I feel kind of bummed though because uh, there was some stuff I wanted. I was I wanted to ask you guys about Dig and some other stuff, um, but we're probably running out of time. I think we we can we can squeeze in a couple of questions quickly. Yeah, real quickly. I gotta I gotta go in about one in about I don't know just a couple minutes. So. Unfortunately, I have the, 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 uh, my wife is waiting for me to take the kids. So yeah, I'm going to have to roll. But, uh, yeah, we, if you pick out your favorite topic. 
that you wanted to talk about. Well, what do you guys think about the, the new Dignation stuff going on, or the new Dig uh, post? Did you guys see that? I didn't, know. But, so, yeah, about the new Dig 4.0. Um, yeah, so Dig's relaunching itself. Uh, basically, the, the big difference is, is it's now kind of focusing on publishers putting in their feeds. Um, yeah, there was a post in TechCrunch about it. Um, huh. Then the founder of Reddit on Hacker News yesterday posted an open letter to Kevin Rose, really just saying, wow, you sold out, man. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, it was, it was all kind of interesting. I, I think it's kind of interesting because yeah, I got a, I like that dig is really kind of going out of the box and trying to reinvent itself. Um, I'm not sure it'll work. So, so what exactly is it? Can you explain, can you explain it to us? Right. So what they're going to do is the next time you log into dig, you're basically going to be, you know, forced through a process to, um, you know, connect with your friends, you know, log into your Facebook account. So you're basically following a bunch of people. Um, and then after that, you're going to be getting, you know, digs from the people that are in your group. Um, they're also going to put a focus on what they're calling trendsetters, you know, people like Leo Laporte or TechCrunch. Um, so, so you're, instead of getting the general news feed, you're going to be getting a, a feed that's really influenced by your personal network. Um, the other big change that they're doing is they're encouraging publishers to just push via RSS their entire feed. Hmm. Um, I see. Right. So, so when you say publishers, you mean anyone with a blog rather than like a large publishing house like New York Times. You just mean anyone, right? Right, anyone. Well, I don't, what's so, wrong with that? So, why, why is that selling out? Well, so Dig was originally about, you know, user edited news or whatever, things that people actually found interested, interesting. It, you know, um, by just allowing publishers to connect their, their RSS, you're essentially a, a feed reader, a feed reader that's already pre-populated. I see. Um, it's, it's not about users, you know, cultivating, you know, or editing the content. Right, because wasn't, so, wasn't it something like, I, I read something about it last night, and it, you know what I tend to do sometimes is, I don't know what you on Hacker News, I don't actually read the article, I'll just read the comments first to decide if I want to read the article. And I, I can't remember if this was in the article or the comments of one of these open letters, you know, um, and uh, I think it was that you, you watch your friends, not the publisher. The publisher could be a friend, but it's like you're, you're not looking at the most popular stories, you're looking at what your friends think is cool. Right. Is that right? Yeah. So, well, no, and then you're also following yeah, no, certain publishers, right? So they're they're considered your friends, right? Just like your, some, yeah. like almost like your friends, your publishers, whatever. Those are people you subscribe to, or, are you know just uh, blogs that you subscribe to, in a way. Yeah, um, yeah it's very much like Twitter, without which, the comments, just the links. But doesn't but doesn't the dig aspect still have, you know, play a role in like? Don't you? There's, so there's no more dig voting. There's no more digging. Yes, there is. But how does that work within yeah. the framework of who you're following? It's just the most popular stories. So they're rankings within. So it's almost like a each publisher is like a, its own subreddit on you know, its own subtopic. So you have things voted up by people who, by stories, under from that feed or something like that. Is that how it works? Yeah, I. I believe how it works is, yeah, you, you log in and basically you see whoever you're following, what they're pushing, but then also what's 
been dug the most within that. I mean, all these things are kind of interesting because you have the dig concept, which you see on Reddit and Hacker News, which is vote stories up. Then you got the Twitter, which you have your followers concept. So you follow certain people. And then you also have your, like I said, your feed reader. So it's kind of merging those three concepts, which, you know, are all concepts that work in a way in their own ways and have their own strengths and weaknesses. So, and I could see that. I mean, you know, I know that it's, it's kind of like, I thought about that on Hacker News, which I, which is my primary, you know, sort of news source. And there are sometimes there are certain types of stories that I just don't care about and they keep popping up and that you'd almost be like, you know, I don't, I, I'd almost rather subscribe or have certain types of stories or by certain types of maybe, um, I don't know, uh, submitters that I just add, just filter that. I don't really care about that stuff, you know? Jason, it sounds to me like it's moving in the direction that of that we've been talking about even from the first go, which is just a much clever, cleverer way of bringing the content to each user that they want to see. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, it sounds like a good thing, not a bad thing. Well, they got to do something, I guess. You know, at this point, I guess Dig is starting to struggle, right? I mean, that's the whole point of making this change is that Dig was this really big deal like three or four years ago, but now it's sort of flat, you know, flattened out. Yeah, and- if you go to the compete. Uh, their traffic dropped like 35% last month. Wow, that's huge. Well, you know, it's like, I mean, I guess you have all the people on Reddit, which is sort of a comp- competitor. And then Hacker News, there's a lot of people in the sort of the tech world, which are the early adopters, have moved on to places like Hacker News. Yeah. Hacker News is, is very small, though, compared to Dig. Yeah, I, to I think so. But that's the early adopters. Those are the, the sort of, the, that's like the first wave. And part of the beauty, it's a community you get along with, which is kind of what happened with Dig is, you know, the, the community kind of soured or not soured, but uh, yeah, became totally. silly or not, not, not interesting to a lot of people, I guess. Yeah, kind of script. Well, whenever, whenever a, whenever an, uh, a community gets too big, it's no longer a community anymore and it loses its, co- its cohesion and, and things. It's just sort of a mass of people, in which case nobody feels any particular, um, I don't know, a connection with those other people. And, and then sort of things like um, this sort of comedy or politeness uh, just sort of degrade and go away. Where in Hacker News, that stuff's very much in force. Yeah. Right? I mean, you don't, you don't see wow. stupid, annoying comments too often. People are fairly polite and fairly respectful and, and uh, thoughtful in their comments. It's not a bunch of jokes and uh, ridiculous. Jason, click, click that link there that's um, compete.com dig, uh, with dig. Okay. That's unbelievable, that curve. Right. Yeah, crazy. You know what it... I mean... Wow, the, I mean, the darling of the, of the press, and then look at that. It's gone for... It's just dipped from 40 million to 25 million. See, I mean, Kevin that's... Rose is going to wish that he had sold half of his shares about <laughs> a year and a half ago, right? <laughs> yeah. And let the rest ride. You know, pocket, you know, 50 million, and then let the rest ride. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you, you know incredible. what it seems the, the most like is Google Buzz, um, which which I don't know if you guys if Google Buzz works for you, but it does nothing for me. Um, and no. primarily that's because, you know, there's no one in my Google network um, to really influence it. And I kind of see the same problem or same challenge with Dig is, you know, even if I kind of put in all my people from Twitter and Facebook. So I've got my social graph on dig. Are those people really going to be going in and digging stuff? Right. I would all, yeah. I would love a Google buzz that works or a dig that works. Um, 
but I don't think people are going to take that extra step to dig. I think they're just going to want to post to their Facebook feed or Twitter feed. I'd like to see something that was like that, but just didn't have the dig. You know, it's like, here's all the links from all the people and trendsetters or publishers you're interested in. And here's kind of a little ranking of popularity based on retweets, comments, whatever. Right. That's, I, I just, I'm still stunned by that, that loss that, that Dick have. I mean, it's, it's, it's just amazing. Imagine that you, you know, you start a company and you're, you know, you're so successful and you really are the darling of the press. And then all of a sudden you lose, you know, 20 million visitors. Like how, I just, that's just nuts. I wonder if they can bring it back up. Obviously the valuation, I mean, so he's, it's kind of interesting. There's an interesting lesson here. Maybe he should have, you know, done an exit. Oh yeah. Is, Dig, Dig never IPO, did it? No. No. So I wonder what the, you know, what the valuation. Yeah, everyone wanted to buy him a while ago. Google. Yeah. Facebook. Well, J- uh, Taylor was uh, great having you on. Really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's um, my pleasure. Good to meet even you more, guys. I've, even more, I uh, appreciate your print-friendly service, <laughs> which I use every single day. Oh, love it. So, great. It's really great. Um, so, uh, okay, well, I guess uh, that's a wrap. We're out. We're out.